Hello, and welcome to the History of Internal Communication podcast. My name is Joe Chick, and I'm a research fellow at the Brunel Business School. In this podcast series, I will be exploring the history of an occupation that's often assumed to be a recent innovation, but which actually has its roots in the late 19th century. My work is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called An Institutional History of Internal Communication in the United Kingdom. This month we are joined by David McLeod, a highly distinguished figure in the world of internal communication. With a career in marketing and business, David became famous for the Engage for Success government report that he co-authored with Nita Clark. In this episode, David talks about the early strategies of managing employee voices through to today's challenges of authenticity. David shares with us what he sees as the five most significant milestones in internal communication from his career. Join us for this thought-provoking interview that provides valuable perspectives on the past, present and future of internal communication. Thank you, David, for joining us today. And I'm sure you're well known by quite a lot of our listeners already. But for those who might not know, would you like to give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and uh, how you came into being a major figure in the area of internal communication? Well, Joe, great to uh, great to speak with you, and thank you to uh, anyone listening to to this. It's uh, it's great to have this opportunity to talk about what such an important area, certainly in my experience. Um, experience that I draw from is uh, essentially uh, first part of my career in marketing, both business to uh, consumer and business to business, then uh, running businesses UK based in international European, and then finally global which uh, I think is an important background to some of the remarks I'll make and through that career I felt increasingly strongly about um, what's become known as employee engagement how you really create conditions in which people want to offer more of their capability and potential Uh, and I've been doing that uh, triggered by a book I wrote on it uh, with Chris Brady and then a report I wrote to government called the McLeod Report, but very much a partnership between uh, 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 between myself um, and Nita Clark uh, in 2009, and then the movement we've been pushing along uh, since then. So that's probably more than enough about me. <laughs> Thanks very much. And obviously, you've mentioned the report you did in 2009, and that had a lot of implications for those who are working in internal communication. So mm-hmm. I was wondering uh, if you could maybe uh, give a bit of a background on why that report did actually get commissioned in the first place and what were the kind of particular concerns uh, about worker productivity that um, kind of meant that at that time it felt there needed to be a report into it. Right, very good. Yes, well, uh, it's interesting to go back. Um, <laughs> this was the tail end, the very tail end of the Labour government. And there was a great sense that um, uh, money was short because of the financial crisis and we needed to think a bit about um, we need to think a bit, a bit about the whole employee relations uh, issue, and uh, Nita Clark, who had a background in the uh, with Labour, was able to, uh, I think, trigger an interest in this. Uh, the civil service were asked to uh, write a re- to find someone to write a report on the topic. So uh, I was fingered, given I'd just written a book on the topic and had worked in the cabinet office. So Nita and I, Clark and I were asked together to to write this uh, write this report to try and answer really three questions: What is employee engagement? 
is there any evidence it matters? And if there was evidence it matters, what, as it turned out, were the four things that were present in organisations that tended to, to do this better, that tended to make a good fist of harnessing more of the capability and potential of their people for better organisational outcomes. So we spent a year researching, uh, writing, drawing it all together with a big team. Uh, the great thing about writing a report to government is all doors open. So we got to see all the big leaders we wanted to see, all the uh, functional institu institutes that we wanted to see, a great range of organisations from which we set out to answer those uh, three questions. Um, I would merely say that the report uh, went down pretty well, uh, not because we're clever, but because it was very timely. I think it was a much greater recognition that the people issues were gaining more centrality in organizations' success or rather lack of success. So there was a growing interest in it um, and having involved so many people in it, I think um, that meant that our conclusions were broadly right, but people said, well, it's not enough just to have a report. Um, we really want help in what we do about it. And we felt that we could either try and raise lots of money and set up a group, or uh, we could try and offer consultancy, whatever. But actually, what we said was, if we're right, and if there's a lot of interest in this, wouldn't it be better to try and set up a sort of voluntarist sense to this, that we come together, those interested, either because they want to learn or they want to teach, we come together to form a movement to raise the profile of the importance of this and shine a light on good practice. And we got the uh, prime, the then prime minister, quite a few prime ministers ago now, yeah. <laughs> Cameron to launch a task force at uh, number 10 uh, with uh, many of the country's most senior leaders turned up and we launched a task force and that led to this movement uh, that I've just mentioned. Obviously, it had big implications, this employee engagement emphasis on that for internal communication with the two being really tied together. And uh, going into doing the report, were you conscious of how important internal communication is for organisations or is it something you became kind of more aware of through doing the research for the report? I think, um, you know, given my background in uh, in marketing and particularly the con uh, business to consumer, the consumer of marketing, one is um, one's uh, interest in and involvement in communications uh, has always been there. So I was kind of sensitised to it all early in my uh, early in my career. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, starting to run international things and then focusing on employee engagement all created momentum around just the importance of the growing importance of this topic as uh, the tectonic plates in the work environment changed throughout the last 40 or 50 uh, year perspective that one might bring to bring to this. And I, I feel very strongly that there was an overarching theme that I think um, summarised the transition that I experienced over my uh, thirty odd years or whatever in uh, in in the work in the workplace. Um, that theme um, I summarise in my own head uh, now as from loud hailers to employee voice. 
Okay, yeah. You know, and in the sort of 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, management was dominated by the kind of tailorist approach of cutting jobs up, often in manufacturing, into bits, uh, giving people bits to do, targeting them on the achievement, time in motion, a lot of sort of top-down boss tells you what to do and you do it kind of stuff. And communication, in a sense, was about telling people um, what to do, what to do, a kind of loud hailerist approach. And I think there have been probably five pretty significant changes, many, many changes, but five significant milestones, changes, tectonic place movements that have increasingly, each one, led to a more important and more central role for internal comms uh, over, over that period. It would be interesting to hear what you see as the five crucial moments. The first one, I think, was when things started to go more international, the sort of 70s and so on. And um, I remember we took over um, a company in in Holland and uh, he explained, I remember him explaining very clearly that the problem that organisations, international organisations started to grapple with is an employee typically had three lines to cope with. One, the function they were in, HR, marketing, comms, whatever else. Two, the business unit they were in, because most big organisations are into business units. And thirdly, the country they were in. And the country had legal implications and cultural implications and so on. So how you managed became much more complex. And the thing that held it all together was a very strong sense of what the organisation, or should be, a very strong sense of what the organisation was trying to do, what its vision was, what its what we now call strategic narrative was, became more important that comms was playing a very important role in ensuring that whether I was working with my um, I'm in this department hat, or I'm in Holland, France, Britain, Germany hat, or I'm in this particular unit, business unit hat, that we were all joined up by something that was bigger and more powerful than simply a set of actions. It was something that held things together. And the way to affect that needed a very effective internal comms department to enable that uh, to be the case. So that gave a spur, I think, to the importance and centrality of, of internal comms. And then, then of course, with this uh, uh, international uh well growth of uh, on the importance of the international came increasing competition so very largely competition had been amongst big national players but was becoming uh, more international as i've mentioned and therefore more dynamic more competitive we needed to um to draw ideas out of the marketplace and we needed teams to be cohesive. So competition created a new layer of dynamism in organizations, which then got a massive boost from what I might argue is the third big change, which is digital. So it used to cost, I think PwC said years ago, it used to cost 10 million pounds to launch a business. With the growth of digital, you could launch a new business for 40,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. So I remember, was it um, uh, one of the big cosmetic companies 
uh, saying that the 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 co the competition that they are facing wasn't from other big international companies. It's much more from someone who'll come up with some brilliant breakthrough in a shed in Watford, um, and and make that available. That the whole <laughs> thing was becoming so much more dynamic. All sorts of new technologies, massive new competition online. There was a kind of a revolution, really, in commerce where ideas were flowing much more fully, much more a much greater ability to make them happen quickly. Now, that that whole dynamic required organizations to be far more agile. You've got to cope with all this change. Mm -hmm. So that was another reason you could just tell people from the dead hand of of uh, of head office. I remember um I was uh, I spoke to somebody who was running the um, the wine department of uh, one of the big supermarkets and he said um he said one well, of the old days uh, I would ask the uh, as the wine boss I'd ask the department the overall department manager who'd ask the store manager who'd ask the regional manager who'd ask head office head yeah. office would think about it and they'd tell the regional manager who'd tell the store manager who'd tell the department manager who'd tell what the what what to do about whatever it was and and of course by then the market had shifted it was irrelevant yeah. and probably it was sort of send three and four puts were going to a dance you know that that thing about how the messages gets twisted at the time so he said now what we do is all the wine managers in this whole uh retailer we're on we're on whatsapp and we say hey there's good weather coming in and uh, we find Pims is selling really, really well. Or there's a batch of wine from someone, it's all corked. So get deal with that. So they were starting to cope in a very dynamic way mm. with the marketplace as it changed. And that required communications of a totally different nature that kept pace with this dynamism. Mm. Uh and that's far more complex, far more important, far more involving, far, far more, far more central. And it also was central to the fourth big change, which was transparency. Now, years ago, when we were trying to attract our graduates, somebody sat in a room and wrote a lovely pamphlet about the joys of working for company ABC. And if this if this pamphlet was well written and so on, that attracted more people and blah blah. Now, of course, if you want to attract people, if you want to get people to join you, what's the first thing they do before they decide whether to join, be it a university or a company or anything else? They go on to one of the digital platforms where people are posting their views. One of the current big ones at the moment is uh, Glassdoor. There are others in other countries, and no doubt there are uh, there are other other ways of doing that. But essentially, what it's like to work here is now a Glassdoor is now open to scrutiny. That means that comms is for yet more reasons getting more important because you need to know what your employees are thinking. You need employees to have real voice so you can deal with issues that need to be dealt with. That transparency is forcing us to reflect much more profoundly on what our organizations are, whether the culture's positive or not, whether we're dynamic or not, whether people are disgruntled or not, uh, what's working, what's not working. You have to face these things in a real-time, honest way because it's evident for everyone uh, to see.
And that, of course, is a huge fillip to the importance of internal comms to be an utter two-way process. That's why it's employee voice that we now need to be concentrating on, not the loud hailer from the bosses down to the uh, to the workers, which is a term I hate, but the workers, uh, as it used as it used to be. The and the fifth thing that I think is um, push this all along is um, the increasing focus that results from some of these changes on employee engagement and well-being. Um, I think that um, if we're going to, people say, what's the difference? And I look at it like this. We need, we want our people to be engaged because more engaged employees deal with issues, they own issues in front of them, they're more innovative, they're more creative than all the things we know about, and results are better. You can sort of do it short term by big stick, you know, you will be made redundant if you don't. You can offer people massive life-changing bonuses, but frankly, most of us aren't in either of those camps. Most of them are getting on with jobs, and and um, if you want them to do that sustainably, you really do need a sense of well-being amongst your employees for moral reasons and for business reasons. So we're all very aware of the growth of the importance of well-being. Uh, Carrie Cooper's done a huge amount in that space, and well-being, uh, and sorry, and engagement. Um, well, we'd like to feel we've made a contribution, as have many others, to the importance of understanding its centrality in organization success. Now, in order that you know how people are, their well-being, in order that you know whether people are engaged or not, guess what? You need a highly effective employee uh, internal comms group who know how to offer a slightly trite expression, but truth to power, who know how to listen, what the, what the right terms are, who know how to juxtapose um, quantitative research with insight research, with the yellow canaries uh, that will tell you things that sometimes don't come through research, um, with the increasing use of AI. So how AI can spot how people are feeling is a very embryonic area, but it's growing like growing like crazy. So uh, internal comms who understand these methodologies for understanding, uh, understanding their role in being uh, right there at the elbow of the chief executive so they know what the reality is. There's no point in saying we need to be far more innovative when internal comms knows there's a huge climate of fear. Um, because if you've got a huge climate of fear, I think the new word is... Uh, is uh, psychological safety i think it's a good it's a good way of thinking about it if there's no psychological safety you're highly unlikely to be innovative and so when the chief executive is working out his or her way forward and it requires uh, certain achievements you need to have people who uh, are prepared to uh, uh, to 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 offer a real insight and know how to harness real insight and know what to do about it in order that whatever the strategy is, which is typically either um, more innovation for competitive advantage or better customer service uh, or more efficiency, uh, cutting costs in a, in a positive way, 
or opening up new markets. And, and you need cultural underpinnings to achieve any of those. And internal comms is central to understanding where you start from and where you might wish to uh, wish to take things. So I think there's been uh, a number of changes. I've offered five, which have taken internal comms from a kind of um, loud hailer function, <laughs> writing pamphlets and summarizing what the boss thinks, through to a much, much more complex and much more important role of really understanding how the employee's feeling uh, through the employees and through others, understanding how the market's changing, understanding that's the relevance of all that to the comp to the company, to its current strategy, to its current culture, uh, so that it's in much better shape to achieve uh, organizational success, be it public or private sector. I, I think I've spoken for much too long, but those are those, those are the reasons why I think it's got more important. Um, we did come up with four enablers of high levels of employee engagement, which I could touch on if you like. Um, and the last thing I would, I think I'd um, slightly stage left thing, but I think it's important, um, which is this good, uh, good internal comms, good employee engagement is a uh, good employee voice is the cheapest smoke alarm you can ever employ because employees know what's going on. And if there is real voice, if internal comms is lubricating that voice through the organization, then you probably don't gain the emissions tests in North America for as long as certain car companies did without senior management knowing about it. And um, you, well, the Challenger is very sadly the Challenger rocket, you know, that, that blew up you know, the engineer who said it's too cold to launch, but they did, you know, if his, if his I think it was, his voice was better or the, the, the uh, certain hospitals that have had trouble, uh, difficulties and, and, and tragedies, um, if there'd been better voice, things could have been dealt with much, much earlier on. It is a smoke alarm and good employee voice, good internal comms means you've got your finger on the pulse much better. And that saves huge cost with extra lawyers and all the damage all the collateral damage that comes with catching something when it's not things go wrong in organizations all the time or certainly didn't once i was with it's always going wrong the question is do you catch them when they're very little things or does it wait until it builds up to a very major thing and then that's and sometimes a catastrophic thing and if you catch it early on then it's just a part of the normal working day as it were if it builds up it it can be terminal. So a good employee voice, good internal comms is is central to uh, uh, to ensuring um, you nip things in the difficult things in the bud. And indeed, you catch great things and give them oxygen uh, to to build the organisation. So um, that's a yeah. slightly stage left thought, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, and it's yeah, it'd be interesting to talk more as well about how you uh, raise the growing awareness of the importance of employee voice. And one thing we've actually found with our research, we found uh, exactly a century ago in, in 1923, we found a uh, magazine from, it was uh, the Welfare Workers Association, I think it was in that one, where there was 
they actually used the word voice and talked about uh, giving greater voice to employees and uh, people writing at that stage about the importance of this. And obviously there's quite a, a different kind of context there and everything, but yeah. uh, I suppose I'm still interested kind of uh, now, I suppose with the context back then, quite often those magazines actually uh, in, were kind of employee led ones, but this was sort of a way of managing, I guess, and, and trying to avoid conflict by allowing a degree of kind of like contribution, but under great surveillance, I guess, from managers where they're allowed to produce magazines. But so they yeah. felt like they were getting a voice perhaps without actually having that much influence. What's interesting is, do you think things are fundamentally different now? Or is there still sometimes the kind of danger that there's a lot of talk about employee voice, but actually that and there's obviously it's politicians are often very keen on talking about how we're listening but sometimes people don't necessarily feel that uh there's as much listening always going on as as is being claimed and do you think things have yeah. moved forwards or is there just more talk about voice i do well i do remember it's very very early in my in my career um someone i witnessed someone going up to senior manager and and i suppose basically having a bit of a go at him about mm. something and I remember the senior manager looking down at this person saying, if I knew your name, I'd do something about you, and walked <laughs> off. <laughs> so I, I don't think, I, I think we've moved on from that. So I think things have moved on. Yeah. Um, but I mm. think, I think there's a lot of tick box goes on. Mm. There's a lot of, we do an employee survey uh, once a year, uh, we delegate the uh, we delegate what we find to individual managers to deal with it, while senior leaders get on with whatever they were doing before. It it actually it's not unhelpful, but it's uh, well it can be unhelpful. I know one one organisation working with where every time the survey the annual survey came up, morale went down. <laughs> okay, yeah. Because they just knew that they spend all this time filling a survey out. And nothing would happen, and so they felt um, that they've just but morale went down. So um, it's it, but most most organisers not unhelpful to do these surveys, but that's not what it's really about. It's it it can be very tick box. We drew a distinction between um, transactional employee engagement and transformational employee engagement. Transformational employee engagement, where there is great internal comms, when people really do care about the organisation, starts with a profound belief in the importance and the centrality of what really great employees can do, all employees can do when they're treated in a particular way. If you if you believe deeply that employees are the solution to a challenge of whatever nature, then that permeates the organization and people within the organization are far more likely to be delivering more. If you think to yourself, people are the problem, if only our people were more customer centric, if only our people would put more effort into ABCD, if only, you know, if you have people as the problem, funnily enough, they tend to become the problem. So those who are making most, most progress, to answer your question, Joe, making pro progress start with a deep-seated belief that people are the solution and if they don't really have that view then it often ends up much more tick box so i think it's a really vital that those in comms are really ensuring that the message 
is sent about this about the absolute vital nature of employ engage employees in order to deliver um better organizational outcomes and once that belief is had and i've seen it happen one of our biggest companies uh the boss was an accountant who was all very skeptical about this but then decided this was really important and started to ask endlessly about this topic someone very senior in the civil service equally they got the topic once they got the topic it turned from tick box into something important that then started to pervade the organization so in summary we are in a better place than we were um decades ago but we've got a hell of a long way to go before we get to the point where uh the people issues are given the same respect and attention as the sort of hard strategic issues because one is utterly dependent on the other uh, and we need uh, to have internal comms as a central lubricating function that really does understand where we're starting from what the challenges are can introduce best practice from outside as well as uh, as well as best practice from inside to ensure that we're uh, raising our standards to uh, uh, to the best um, and uh, attempting and therefore coping with the various demands that are on us from customers in, uh, and employees and markets, uh, challenges that we face, etc. I mean, how we cope leaving the single market is going to be is going to be very uh, central to uh, the economic future. Uh, that's going to mean when they're going to need to have much more of our people many more of our people offering more of their capability potential to uh in order to compensate so um it's a it's a central central topic in my view joe and it needs to come away but it's got a long way to go as well yeah and i suppose the type of communication we've been talking about so far has been the sort of uh, management-led one of how they communicate with their employees but of course another looking back over the last century or so another important way of communication has been the more formal uh methods i guess through uh, trade unions and uh, i guess the collective bargaining which was i guess something that was starting to rise in the late 19th and early 20th century and um and i guess in part we see internal communication strategies from managers themselves uh, emerging they're fairly open about this and uh, the kind of articles they write is almost a way of trying to undercut the trade unions because they want to by trying to uh, communicate directly it takes away that the power of the unions who are trying to uh, i guess be the ones who they want to be the ones mediating, I guess, contact between employers and employees. And I suppose what's interesting, of course, just over the last few years, we've now started to see, uh, obviously, the importance of trade unions in uh, negotiating coming back again. So I was interested maybe also to hear uh, kind of, yeah, what impact you feel that trade unions have uh, over yeah. a communication between employers and employees. Well, this is um, Nita Clark's um, uh, area, uh, having worked in the union movement and uh, at number 10 for many years on employee relations and um you know with the thought that um that those who've been steeped to this area often say which is um you get the unions you deserve um and actually if you have um open communication about what you're doing and why you're doing it then you tend to get a much more constructive set of employee relations in that sense i mean i've worked a lot in germany where they uh, go on about uh or some some people go on about the horrors of of uh the consultation processes in in germany well i always found them really perfectly 
perfectly positive. I mean, you, you had to turn up and talk to unions about what you're doing, why you're doing it. You've got to ask questions, often actually very good questions, often helpful questions. Um, and uh, so to to put emphasis in talking through the organizational structures, be they formal unions or consultation groups or whatever else, um, I think that's uh, I think that's um, that's healthy. Uh, and the more effort you put in, uh, the more likely it is to be a positive, constructive uh, relationship. And the more you're secretive and duplicious and untrustworthy, the more you're going to get difficult employee relations. So um, it's not surprising that with the need to attract and retain people more, with the emphasis on engagement, well-being and so on and so on, that, that employees' voice uh, is more important and it can be channeled you know, through more uh, structured methodologies. So through unions and, and others. So it's not a surprise to anyone that we're seeing greater emphasis on um, on this, I think. And yeah. quite right too. And it's not to be feared, it's to be embraced. And I think another, I guess, uh, factor that might have changed communication that uh, we haven't talked about so far, but the reports I think mentions is uh, the idea of the death of deference with uh, the employer-employee relationship with uh, kind of changing expectations that you get through uh, millennials. So do you think that organisations do have to uh, have had to change the way that they communicate to, I guess, accommodate social changes like these rather than, I guess, technological or political changes? I think I could well have I could well have included that one under my under the five points I raised. I suppose it's implicit with some of the things I said, but absolutely 100 um, percent. The death of deference, you know, the old thing about uh, it used to be the boss said jump. Uh, used to say the response used to be how high and now it's why um, not not an aggressive way but you know if I'm going to jump I'd quite like to know why I'm jumping and and that kind of death of deference in that very constructive way means that we've 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 educated people to believe quite rightly that there is opportunity that there is um, a contribution to be made that um, you know background shouldn't affect that we should all be able to uh, to, to have our voice heard. So employee voice is far more important um, and, than it has been because, for many reasons, but because of uh, the death of deference, whereby I expect to be. If you can't tell me why, I'm less interested. And I think that what gives me massive hope for the future is the younger generations coming through seem to be far, in my experience, seem to be much hotter on this than previous generations. They want to know why. They want a sense of what the contribution is to uh, for the organisation. We can't all work for UNICEF or whatever, but we can work for organisations broadly making a positive contribution and to society in whatever form. And people want to know that. They want to know the why. So they want to know the why. They want to be listened to. Employee voice is an expectation which uh, must be uh, which must be respected. Um, I would, I'd add one little codicil, which is in our report, we did tackle this issue of behaviours. And, um, and, um, and we of the four things that engage people, one was your manager. And the really good managers are reinforcing positive behaviours. But they're also addressing dysfunctional behaviours. Um, which broadly you could put under voice, I suppose, but it's uh, if if 
if someone's always late for meetings and you don't address that issue, then you've just you just said, I, I don't mind what time you come to meetings, fine by me, which is deeply dysfunctional. Or someone's not pulling their weight and you don't address the issue, then you just the standard of uh, for your team has just gone down to the lowest common factor. You've got to address dysfunctional behavior. Employee voice, a death of deference. It's about explaining things, but it's also about setting expectations. It's a two-way street here uh, so that the organization and everyone in it can can thrive. So uh, yes, death of deference is uh, is absolutely uh, a central central part of the movement uh, to the importance of uh, of comms and the need for employee voice uh, and setting standards is is also a part of it all. This isn't all about uh, just being nice. This is about making sure that we all have jobs and successful jobs and jobs where Monday morning is not an unnecessary trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, given we've talked about quite a lot of uh, changes that have had an impact on internal communication, then for those people who are actual IC practitioners, uh, what implications does it have for their role, do you think, has the role of the uh, internal communicator changed as a result of the, these developments we've been talking about? I think um, it, in the, the role of internal communication is, is potentially a lot more central than it was for all the reasons we've been talking about. <clears throat> And you can, uh, comms can be a, a sort of um, a function on the outer edge or, or a function right in the center. The way it's a fun, the way that internal comms becomes a function right in the center of the top teams is when internal comms are real experts. They really know what good practice is in the areas we've been speaking about. They really understand how to connect that with the strategy that the organization is seeking to adopt. So they need to be uh, very well briefed, um, very well networked. They need to have a range of skills around empathy around listening, about how to harness quantitative research, but also qualitative research and AI. They need to be uh, people who know how to offer truth to power, as well as uh, deliver the good news. Uh, they know how to ensure that Intel comms is in the drumbeat of management practice. So it's a much more demanding role, a much more interesting role, a more pivotal role. And if people in it are more attuned to those things they will find themselves gravitating to the top table and if they're not they're more likely to stay being asked to do things by those on the top table if you see what I mean. does that make sense yes that does make sense mm. yeah and i suppose now that it's 14 years on since uh, your report was written i suppose one thing i'd be interested to hear is whether it's had the impact that you think you would have expected in 2009 or <clears throat> have things not necessarily developed the way you would have expected? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think I think what one, what one might say is that we and with many others have meant that this topic, speaking actually to one of the most senior uh, leaders in British industry, saying this topic has gone from um, slightly bringing bring in the people with the white coats because we're talking about something irrelevant, <laughs> You know, when you first talked about it uh, 20 years ago, 
to now being a topic which does deserve space at the top table, at the boardroom table, at the top team table. I think the topic has moved um, from uh, not being talked about to being talked about. And I think that is very important. I think the young are having an important role in this. I think some of the newer businesses understand this better. <clears throat> and, so I, and I think diversity is a very important part of making this happen. I think the more diverse top teams are, the better they are at it. So I think all this has, has moved it uh, uh, to more, more centrally than it was in the past. And if we've played a part in that, which I hope, believe we have, then that's uh, terrific. It still has a very important way to go to a point where organisations take the uh, people issues at the same level of priority as they do other hard strategic issues. And comms has a, a central role in enabling that to be based on firm ground, uh, harnessing best practice so that our employees feel Monday mornings the next part of the week and they're contributing, they're offering more of their capability potential, the organisation's addressing its issues better, succeeding better, growing better um, and competing better. Uh, and so it's uh, it's got a way to go uh, in that regard. But let's not let's look down the mountain sometimes as well in terms of where we came from. Ah, very good. Yeah. <clears throat> and then uh, last of all, I guess, uh, when we're thinking about history, it's also then interesting when you think about change to think about where things are going in the future as well. So uh, what do you think? Are there any kind of emerging trends at the moment that you think are kind of of particular significance? And where do you kind of see the future of internal comms going? Wow, that's a, that's a huge, absolutely fascinating question. Um, I suppose you have to start with where's where's the sort of industrial powerhouse part of you know products and services powerhouse part of our of society going because that sets the scene for comms and everything else. In other words, um, are we going to adjust successfully to the developing environment or? Uh, which is, um, well, right now, the word broken Britain is, is out a lot, isn't it? Which is probably a bit over the top. But nevertheless, it, it, the sense that we're more fractured, media's more fractured, um, uh, arguably Britain's not doing as well as it needs to do or should do. So there's a kind of a, uh, a, a, a sort of crisis of capitalism, to quote the Financial Times, Um is creating an environment where we're having to think much more deeply about about these issues. The question is, do we have, will we have a government and leaders in society that uh, are very encouraging of the huge strengths that we have uh, as a country, our creativity, our our, uh, healthcare initiatives, our pharmaceuticals, our media, are uh, the way that the best run organizations are really stellar and fascinating and uh, constructive uh, a sense of decency will we will we be able to navigate our way for that to be the dominant issue if we can then we unleash this pool of not exclusively but younger people worried about concerned about the environment concerned about our future concerned about purpose wanting to harness uh, AI and some of the moves to four-day working weeks and so on 
are wanting to harness all these things to create more successful economic engine room to our society and better quality jobs that enable that to happen. I would be very hopeful. I think I'm broadly an optimist. I would be hopeful that we would move more to that space rather than the space of top that reversion to top down command and control cut 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 short termism um uh, a kind of uh you know human resources kind of as an attitude uh stuff i think that um i think i would be broadly hopeful that we will 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 take we will draw the positives out of the possible scenarios and move in that direction and internal comms has got a very crucial role to make sure that and to enable organizations to understand the context in which we're in and the context for where their organizations start from today. We know we have a distrustful or a trustful or an energetic or very little psychological safety or whatever it is. We really understand where we're starting from and they help to build an organization which is based on trust and co-ownership and leadership and concern for well-being. Um, as someone said, trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. So we need to you know, ensure that comms are right there catching things when they're going wrong early on. They have an increasingly important role to ensure that all organizations are lubricated by real knowledge of what's happening, why it's happening, where the opportunities are, and what they need to do to capture a positive future. With that, we conclude this insightful episode of the History of Internal Communication podcast. Thank you to our guest, David McLeod, for his perspective on the evolving world of internal communication. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again. Come back next month when we will be speaking to Mike Klein, an internal and social communication consultant at Changing the Terms, who has experience of internal comms not just in the UK, but also in Iceland, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands and the US. Until next time, why not visit our website, www.historyofinternalcoms.org, where you can view our latest blog post that explores the role that context plays in the way that a message is interpreted. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to you joining us again in February.